Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come in the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders seethe because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets, because the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the will is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of all vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. This is the word of God. During our time of prayer, Jared already alluded to the fact that this has obviously been a week of tremendous turmoil and upheaval in our nation. We saw violence in our capital. There's a lot of political chaos and a political turmoil that's happening. There's questions about the future, what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. And all this comes at a time in which we were already in the middle of a pandemic It's a time of great uncertainty. And many Christians are asking questions like, how do I, as a follower of Jesus Christ, shine the light of God in the darkness of this time? Some of us haven't quite got to that question yet because we're just wrestling with the question, God, I'm afraid. What's going to come next? What does the future hold? And as That's the week that's happening in America right now. Um, I had the thought, and Chauncey and I spoke a little bit about, should we change our sermon? Should we, instead of returning to the book of Ecclesiastes and finishing this book, focus on what is a Christian's response to the current time? And ultimately decided, you know what, let's pray for our nation, which we just did, and do we need to keep praying, family? But maybe instead of doing another sermon about Christians in the public sphere, which we've already done several times over the last year, maybe what we need today is exactly what was already on the schedule, which is a dose of perspective. Because in times of crisis, particularly if you're in a time of crisis after crisis after crisis, sometimes the urgent 
the urgency of the moment can overwhelm our perspective of what's really important. And this is a text which is designed to get our perspective focused on the big picture of eternal things. And it's my prayer and our conviction that the people whose perspectives are focused on the big picture of eternal things are going to be the ones who are best equipped to have the mindset and the heart and the attitude to do good in the midst of the turmoil today. So that's my prayer for us. What this text does is not answer the question, what's going to happen in the next two weeks? But it does, in some ways, answer the question, what's going to happen? And the answer is this, you're going to get old and die. It's possible that you won't get old, but you're definitely going to die. And if you don't do that soon, you'll get old first. But that's actually not the end, because our text is saying we're all going to get old, and we're all going to die, and then comes life after death, an encounter with God. And the text says, therefore, remember also your creator. That's verse one. Remember also your creator in the day of your youth. So if you take away three key words from this text, here they are. Everybody say, remember your creator. creator. We'll talk more towards the end of the sermon about what exactly that means. But we can say briefly right now, remember your creator means think about God. As you're living life, keep God in mind. Keep God at the center of your thoughts. God is more important than the things that often feel overwhelmingly important to us. The text says, not just remember your creator, but remember your creator in the days of your youth, which means think about God now. Don't wait. Not only is this the most important, it's also the most urgent. Don't wait until five years from now or two years from now or tomorrow to give your thoughts to God. Give your thoughts to God now. So there's some small kids in the room, some little kids, uh, five, six, seven, few little kids at that age, and there's some 10, 11-year-olds, and there's some teenagers in the room. It's not too early for you. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, Remember your Creator. And we've got some 20-year-olds and some 30-year-olds in the room. It's not too early for you. Start walking with God now. Everybody say, Remember your Creator. And if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it's neither too early nor too late. What the text is saying is right now, start remembering your Creator. And for those who are already in those later decades, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the ones who learned to walk with God while they were young will tell you, it's the best thing I did. And the ones who didn't start walking with God will later will say, I wish I would have started earlier. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And then the text helps us think about the urgency of this by reflecting on these realities because you're going to get old. You're going to age. Everything that seems so important now is going to change. What seems so urgent right now is going to seem unimportant. But what will matter 30 years from now, 50 years from now, 150 years from now, 1,000 years from now, what will matter is did you know God? So the last half of verse 1 turns our thoughts to this issue of aging and death, which is where a lot of the text is going to go. What we have in the next five and a half verses is a slew of metaphors that describe aging and death. And before we get into those verses, I want to take just a second, and I don't want us to leave this text thinking that, man, these old people just don't have nothing to think about. (laughs) Because I want to affirm the beauty of old age. There's a glory to it. There's a patience that comes with aging. There's a wisdom that older people have that young people lack. And we need to listen up to this. 
is just true. I'm not saying I'm one. I'm not joining the young ones. In the Bible, God clearly loves old people. <laughs> Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Caleb, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Anna. We can just name them. These are people who God used in their old age. There are opportunities that older people have that young people don't have. For the older folks with us watching, I really want you to hear, or for the older folks even with us in our congregation, I want you to hear that God loves you. Mm-hmm. Know that God wants to use your experience and your wisdom to bless people. He wants to do that. There's a beauty in old age. But as Proverbs 20, verse 29 tells us, it says that the glory of young men is their strength. The glory of old men is their, is their gray hair. Aging is about growing in wisdom, but it's also about losing strength. Mm. It's not always a pleasant experience. Look at the second half of verse 1. We already heard, remember also your period in the days of your youth. Then he says, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure. See, the sage is realistic about the reality that aging is not always a pleasant experience. Some of you who have walked through um, dementia or Alzheimer's with grandparents, have walked through cancer, you know it's not always a pleasant experience to age. It's not always fun. We don't look forward to it. So I want to spend a few minutes unpacking some of the metaphors that we find in, in these rest of these verses, verses 2 through 6. Look with me at verse 2. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Now the sage here isn't saying that the sun stops shining as soon as you get your AARP card or something like that. He's not saying that. What he's saying though is that aging is like creation in reverse. So Robert Alter says, creation in reverse you can't see as well as you used to. You can only drive at night. Or you can only drive in the daytime because when it's dark, it's, it's really dark when it's dark. Life seems more threatening. That, that metaphor he has about the clouds returning after the rain, think about that. No one would experience it. The clouds would come and the rain would come. And then after the rain, you'd expect a rainbow. What he's saying is that when you're, when you're aging, what happens is, the clouds come, the rain comes, and then all that's coming after the, cl- after the rain is actually more clouds. It's like life, the threateningness of life is compounded. So when you're young, if you nick yourself when you're shaving, no big deal, it'll kill. When you're old, if you're on blood thinners, you nick yourself, it might lead to more and more and more problems. Life compounds in difficulty. Now I want to look at verses 3 and 4. These are some of my favorite in the passage. In verses 3 and 4, we have this extended metaphor that shows us the pain of, of aging. Now, to make this metaphor kind of come alive, we go in, I want to go into the, into the setting of the, of the text. So you ready to do that with me? You guys use your imaginations for a second. So I want you to imagine that you live in a village. And in this village is a pretty large estate. Uh, working at that estate are some male servants who keep the house. You've got some, some uh, female servants who every day they go down to the mill and they, and they grind mill to make flour. They're essential workers. You've got to have them. You've got soldiers that, that kind of keep patrol around the city, around the village. You've got a marketplace in the middle of the village that is 
like the stock exchange, who were going and buying and trading and selling all the time, trying to barter and sustain their families. You feel that? You see where we are? That's the picture where we are. This is the kind of society that we see happening in verses 3 and 4. But now I want you to digest verses 3 and 4 with that setting in mind. Look what he says. He says, this is the day in, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. What the sage is describing here is a village that has been characterized by the sounds of the city, but now it's dying. We have keepers in the house. These are probably the servants in the estate. They've been going here and there, but, but now they're, they're trembling because they're afraid. Maybe they're afraid of what we see in verse 5, which is the heights. They're trembling because of the heights. In other words, I'm afraid that if I keep walking, I'm going to fall. You know, older folks who are like that, they don't want to go anywhere because they might fall and they break a hip and it's over. You've got strong men who's likely soldiers. No longer are they standing upright to patrol, but now they're bent over, they're stooped. You've got these grinders, these female servants who are working at the mill, all this, all this traffic, but, but now they are ceasing because there aren't that many around anymore. Death is on the rise, people are growing old, the village is at the end of its life cycle. And those who look through the windows are dim. That's a sign of hopelessness. The doors on the street that are shut, those are the gates of the city that are usually opened in the marketplace, and now there's no trading going on, and so now they're closed, they're shut. Even the music of the daughters of song, who are likely the mourners in the city, they mourn the funerals, there's been so many of them, that now they're even dying down. So that, what we see at the very middle of verse 4, when wise is the sound of the bird. In other words, where you usually hear, in our context, a train or the shuffle of cars outside, all those sounds have died down so that now you can hear the birds again. You see the isolation? You see this city becoming a ghost town? That's what we're talking about. What he's saying is that life is like that. That as we age, isolation and weakness begin to characterize our lives. He's being realistic. That's what, that's what aging is like. You can't work like you used to. You can't move like you used to. You can't see like you used to. You can't hear like you used to. You can't feel like you used to. The energy you used to have, you don't have anymore. The strength you used to have, you don't have anymore. You go to more funerals than you want to. So that in the end of verse 5, we see the reason for that is because man is going to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. As Asia is saying, this is where life is going when you grow old. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't embalm aging in a beautiful dress. He says, this is what aging is like. And then look in verse 6. He moves on to death. He says, these are the days before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And these are really two metaphors, two images that we see. The first is of the silver cord with a golden probably a golden oil lamp hanging from it, and he's saying that what death is like is when that cord is snapped and everything smashes to the ground. 
that second metaphor about a pitcher shattered at the fountain, the wheel broken, the sister, what he's saying is that, you know, life is like water, and, and, and we're going to have something to go scoop that life up and carry it with us. What he's saying is that death is coming when everything that carries the life is going to be broken. And Sage is not optimistic about aging and dying. He brings a realism to confront us with the reality of what are we doing with our lives. So what we see in these verses are images of the pain of aging and the pain of death. So Chauncey's been helping us think about verses 2 through 6 and how those metaphors cause us to face the difficult reality that lies ahead of all of us. We're going to die, and if we live long enough before we die, our bodies are going to get old, and we're going to have to grieve for people. Those are just facts of life. And Ecclesiastes is saying, don't hide from those facts, face them. Think about them. And that leads us to some really profound statements that we need to think about in verses 7 and 8. First, look with me at verse 7. It says, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This is trying to help you think about the hour of your death. Could come today, could come 10 years from now, 50 years from now, but one day it's going to happen. And when you die, what does that mean? It means the dust returns to the earth. Your body is going to stop working. You're going to die and then your body's going to decompose. I love to read biographies. I've read a lot of them. Just finished a biography of George Washington. And the middle of biographies is often so exciting, but you know how every biography ends? They die. Their body turns to dust. So it's causing us to face the reality. My life story, my biography, not that anybody's going to write it, but if they did, it would end with me dying and getting buried and my body returning to dust. But the second half of the verse is the one you really need to think about because it says, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Which is to say, it's hard for us to imagine life apart from our bodies because we're embodied creatures. Our souls are connected to our bodies. But Scripture teaches that who you are, your core identity, your soul, transcends your body. So that death does not just mean my consciousness is snuffed out and it's over. My soul, my consciousness, has a date with God the moment after I die. All of us are going to die, and then God. Now that should fill us with tremendous hope. If we're Christians, that should give us great joy. That should also make us tremble a little bit. Because our souls are made to enjoy God. In God's presence, there's fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore, says Psalm 1611. And yet sin alienates us from God. The wages of sin is death. Sin is turning away from God. Now, I want you to think about this. God is goodness itself. God is joy itself. So sin is turning away from God. When Christians talk about hell and judgment and damnation, we're not talking about a vindictive God who says, if you don't do what I want, I'm going to punish you. What we're saying is damnation is just sin getting what it wants. If I live in sin, if I turn from God and keep going and keep going, and God's grace is calling me back to Him, but I reject it and I turn away, I'm turning away from joy itself. There is no joy apart from God. There is no goodness apart from God. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is that the perfect Son of God came to the earth and died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that if we trust Jesus, we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled to God by grace. Which is to say, all of us are going to die and it really matters at that moment, did I die in sin or did I die in Christ? If we've trusted in Jesus, that's joy. That's entering into profound life. But if we've rejected God and persisted in our sin, it's cutting off that last opportunity for joy. Now this should make us tremble and help us think about the power and the beauty of what's being said here. I want you to think of three metaphors for death. A while back I read a book by Peter Kreef, Christian philosopher, that gave us five metaphors for death. I'm just going to give you three of them right now from that book. But these are ways that Christians, reflecting on this biblical theology of death, have painted pictures to help us think about it. And the first is death as enemy. Everybody say enemy. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul talks about death as enemy because, according to Scripture, death is a consequence of sin. God created human beings in His own image so that we could enjoy relationship with Him and receive from Him the gift of life and life eternal. But death is a turning away from God, which is a turning away, or excuse me, sin is a turning away from God, which is a turning away from life. And so the wages of sin is death. Death is an enemy. It comes because of sin. And death ruins our plans, doesn't it? Death brings an end to so many of the good gifts of God that Ecclesiastes has celebrated. I mean, Ecclesiastes has said, enjoy your food, enjoy your relationships, enjoy your work. But Chauncey just said to us, aging and death takes away that capacity to enjoy our work and to enjoy our food and to enjoy our relationships. So death as enemy. And if we die apart from Christ, that's really the main way to think of death. But what 1 Corinthians 15 says is that Jesus, through His death and resurrection, defeated death. So it no longer is an enemy that can dominate us. And actually, it becomes transformed. So that if we're in Christ, there's two other ways. We can think of death as mother. Everybody say mother. Now that sounds weird to you maybe, but think about this for a second. Not too long ago, you were inside your mother's womb. And from that perspective, inside your mother's womb, you really could not imagine what freedom and what opportunity existed for you outside of the womb. It was just kind of comfortable and you wanted to stay in there, right? And then after a period of time um, in which you were in your mother's womb enjoying the warmth and comfort and familiarity of all, something traumatic happened called birth. And that's traumatic. Whether you come in through the birth canal or whether the C-section and you're getting ripped out, there's a trauma there. But that trauma that ends everything you know about reality led to the world. It led to new capacities for freedom and growth and joy and experience. And what the metaphor is saying is this. For Christians, this life is like life in the womb. We like it. We get kind of attached to it. We don't want it to stop. Much like that baby in the womb didn't want it to stop. Death is like the trauma that comes at the end of that pregnancy. But on the other side of that trauma is a life with Christ, which is composed of freedom and joy beyond anything we can imagine. That's real life. Everything that we're living now is just a foretaste or a pale shadow of that life. Or, here's the third one, death as lover. Everybody say lover. Which is to say, we were made for God, and the longer we live, the longer we recognize that as good as all of God's created gifts are, the only thing that can really satisfy us is the Creator Himself. 
We enjoy friendship and food and life and all those things because they're a little bit like God. But those things can only satisfy us for a little while. Our souls thirst for something more. God is our lover. God is the one that we're made for. And death is the one who ushers us into his presence. Death is enemy. Death is mother. Death is lover. Now, with those metaphors in mind, we can read verse 8 in a new way. Verse 8 says, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. But actually, I would suggest to you that vanity is not a good translation here. Now, this word is the Hebrew word that we've talked about several times. Everybody say hevel. Hevel. And hevel is a word that means vapor. So you can picture, as we've done several times in our study of Ecclesiastes, there's a vapor, there's steam, and you reach out to grab it. It looks like it has shape and form, but when you grab it, it slips through your fingers and then it just disappears. Now, there's parts in Ecclesiastes in which the sage is calling things hevel, and what he means really is something like it's meaningless or it's vain. But here in this context, it it really doesn't get the point to say it's vain or it's meaningless. What he's saying is not life is vain and meaningless. What he's saying is that life is very short and very mysterious. Because right now, we're like those unborn babies in the womb who don't know what's going on. But God knows we're about to be born. He sees the life on the other side of, of that death, which is a birth for us in Christ, which is to say, God knows something great is coming that we can't imagine, and God knows how to live now in order to prepare ourselves for that reality. Therefore, since you're going to die, remember your Creator. Everybody say, remember your Creator. Now, having worked through those verses, let's come back to verse 1 and talk about what does it mean to remember your Creator in the days of your youth. The first one is to say, remember your creator means give thanks to God as you enjoy the good gifts of life and creation. Let me say that again. Remember your creator means give thanks to God as you enjoy the good gifts of life and creation. See, God is the creator of everyone and everything. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from him. Recognizing that is part of what it means to remember your Creator. Now, we've seen this in Ecclesiastes already. Ecclesiastes 5.18 told us, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toiled under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. What he's saying is, you know, when you taste a good meal, remember your Creator and give thanks. When you do hard work, remember your Creator. When you lie down to rest, remember your Creator. When you laugh with a good friend, remember your creator. When that SSI check or that paycheck or that stimulus check comes in the mail, remember your creator. When you spot Saturn and Jupiter and Mars in the night sky, remember your creator. When you take a hot shower, remember your creator. God is a God who made everything from nothing because he loves you. You get that? He made it because he loves you. Receive his good gifts of love as a gift from him. Second thing, remember your creator means is listen carefully to God's word. This has been one of the major themes of Ecclesiastes. I'm thinking of chapter 5, verse 1, which said this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they don't know what they're doing. Now, he's talking about that in a temple context, but if we move it to our context today, what he's saying is, listen, at church, you do a lot of things. You sing, you greet people. Etc. But the most important thing that you do is hear God's word. Because if you're a fool who comes in here and doesn't listen to God and trust and obey, then all you're singing is meaningless. 
Remember your creator means hear God's word. When we open the Bibles, we're not opening a a merely insightful human book. We're opening a book that was breathed out by God. The only one who knows what's at the other side of death. Our creator who's telling us the meaning of life and death and what comes after death. If there's one person who has access to that information, why wouldn't we listen to him? That's what Ecclesiastes has been saying to us. So remember your Creator means hear God's Word. But we've also said hear doesn't just mean passively listen to sermons. What it means is believe everything God teaches. Trust everything that God promises. Obey everything that God commands. Let the Word of God dwell richly within you and transform your life. Live within God's boundaries. Ecclesiastes 5.7 reads, God is the one you must fear. As we said before, the filial fear of God means we love our Heavenly Father so much that we don't want to do anything that dishonors Him or that would hinder our relationship with Him. The truth is, if we love anything else more than God, we'll become slaves to whatever we love more than God. So if we love money more than God, money will enslave us. If we love power more than God, the lust for power will enslave us. If we love popularity more than God, trying to heal up our image will enslave us. If we love anything else more than God, then we'll be enslaved. But if we love God more than anything else, that is the only worship that is in line with reality. Mm-hmm. And thus, it is the only worship that will liberate us to be who God has made us to be. Now, what does that look like? Well, living within God's boundaries looks like saying no to greed, saying no to pride, saying no to gossip, saying no to slander, saying no to rebellion, saying no to deception. But when we say no to these vices, what we're really saying is yes to God, and yes to God's good creation, and yes to God's good order for the world. Yes, we all fall. Yes, we all sin. But when we sin, the filial fear of God makes us quit to run back to God, repent of our sins, receive His forgiveness, and start enjoying God all over again. So remember, your Creator means live within His good boundaries. A fourth thing it means, remember your Creator means do good as long as you live. That's what chapter 3, verse 12 said of Ecclesiastes. He said, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. So everybody say, do good. Here's the logic. God is the creator of the universe, which means God gives life. God gives blessing. God gives joy. God gives freedom. God gives peace. The people who remember God are the people who join with God in giving to others life rather than death, blessing rather than curses, peace rather than violence, forgiveness rather than bitterness. Join God in His good work of cultivating life. Now this brings us back to where we started the sermon because Christians ought to be asking ourselves the question, how do we live in such a time as this? And what I want to say is, if we don't remember our Creator, then we're going to be probably doing what everybody else is doing, which is spinning our wheels and getting nowhere. But if we're the people who know God, now there's a spiritual depth and a spiritual centeredness and a spiritual rootedness that means in a time of deception, we can be the people of truth. In a time of division, we can be the peacemakers. In a time of hatred and anger, we can be the ones who say, let's calm down and listen to each other and forgive each other. Let's be the people in which families can have Republicans and Democrats that still like each other after Thanksgiving. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's be the people that 
red, brown, yellow, black, and white can still have dinner at each other's houses and celebrate each other. And if we disagree about what you should think about some current debate in society, we listen and we talk about it and we learn from each other and we work together to promote human flourishing instead of just fighting from a retreated position behind our keyboard on social media. We're the people of God who join with the Creator in good works. That means we proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the lost. It means we make disciples and it means we live out the lifestyle of God's kingdom every day so that His creative life can break into our world. On this first point, give thanks, listen carefully to God's word, live within God's boundaries, do good. These are all reflections we've already made in Ecclesiastes. But the revelation of God in Jesus Christ gives us even more we can remember about our Creator. Remember your Creator means remember the gospel of Jesus Christ which delivers you from sin and ushers you into God's eternal life. As we've been talking about aging and death, we've been talking about what it means to remember your Creator. Some of you are getting excited about practicing remembrance this week. How am I going to remember my Creator this week? You're going to think about that. You might talk about that in your community groups. But some of you, as we've been talking about this, may have been dealing with some condemnation. Now, condemnation is from the devil. Condemnation says there's no hope for you. Condemnation says... Uh, you're too far gone to try to remember your creator after what you've done and what you've said and what you've thought last week. Remember your creator. Condemnation would want you to remember your failure more than you remember your savior. Mm. Remember your creator means remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember your creator means you don't rely on your own goodness to have a right relationship with God. That's right. Remember your creator means you can't rely on your own goodness to have right relationship with God. Remember your creator means God saw your failures, all of them. God saw your sins, all of them. God saw your forgetfulness, all of it, and he loved you. And he wanted a relationship with you. And God the Son came to earth as a poor little baby in a little rinky-dinky town to live a life you couldn't live, to die a death you deserve to die, and rose again to make a way for you to have a relationship with God. Remember your Creator means when you confess your sins, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt they are washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember your Creator means you now stand in grace. Remember your Creator means you may fall, you may fail, you may forget, but God is at work to pick you up Help you repent and remind you of his love. Remember your creator means remembering Jesus' love more than you remember your past failures. It means living in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Everybody say, remember your creator. One more. We gave you five things that mean. Here's a sixth one that I want you to think about as we get ready to go to the Lord's Supper. Remember your creator means set your hope fully on the life that comes after aging and death. That's why Christians don't have to be afraid of dying. Right? That's why a pandemic or civil unrest or even the threat of war doesn't hit us the same way it hits people that don't know Jesus. Or if it does, we need to come back to point five and remember the gospel. Remember your Creator means set your hope fully on the life that comes after Life after death. Aging and death are not the end. Our souls are made to enjoy God and God's new creation forever. 
Not only that, but we have the hope of resurrection. If you want the full picture of what we learn in Jesus, is that for those who have trusted Jesus, despite all of our sins, we're accepted into God's family so that when we die, our souls are reconciled with God. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians 1 when he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And yet we read in the book of the Revelation that those souls that are already with Christ enjoying a life that's beyond anything we can imagine, are still asking the question, how long, O Lord? Because there's a greater hope yet to come, which is that Jesus Christ is going to return. And when He returns, He's going to remake the world. The new creation will be heaven and earth reconciled. This world, with all of the goodness and beauty of it, multiplied beyond what we can imagine, and with all of the evil and futility removed. And we are going to rise A new embodied life with Christ, but this time with bodies that don't age. With legs that run and don't get tired. With eyes that are strong enough to look into the face of God. That's our hope. 1 John chapter 3 puts it like this, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you trusted Christ, that's your identity. Your sin doesn't define your identity. Everybody say, we are God's children. But then it goes on to say, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, when Jesus comes back, we shall be like Him. We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. The spiritual veil will be lifted. We will see Christ in His glory. We'll enjoy intimacy with Jesus beyond anything that we can imagine. Take the best worship experience you've had in your life, multiply it times a billion, and then take out all the sin. Right? You're going to have that. Forever, And when that experience happens, it's going to change you, not just your soul purified from all lust, so you won't want to be greedy anymore. You won't want to be selfish anymore. You're going to be really humble, which means you can quit stressing about what everybody thinks about you. You're going to be free to love, but not just that, your body will be transformed to be like the glorified body of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And the text not only says we'll be like Him because we see Him as He is, verse 3 says, and everyone who thus hopes in Him, purifies Himself as He is pure. Which means, if we forget our Creator, we're living for the wrong hopes. I'm going to get that job. This person's going to fall in love with me and marry me, and we're going to live happily ever after. Everyone's going to notice how awesome I am. Whatever it is that we're setting our hopes on. And the thing is, a lot of those things, those false hopes, a lot of them we're never going to get, but even if we get them, they won't satisfy but if you set your real hope, uh, you, set, you set your hope on the reality of, of the gospel, not only are you, can you be 100% sure that it's going to happen, because the one who told us is going to happen is our Creator, who came to earth and told us He was going to die and rise again and then did it, so that it's sure that it's going to happen, but when it comes, you will be satisfied beyond your wildest imagination. That's real hope. And the text says, when you put your hope on that reality it actually begins to purify you and transform you now so that you can be the kind of person, because you're not living for the urgency of this moment, now you're free to become the kind of person who can actually bring life and love into the urgency of this moment. That's what the gospel does to us. Let me say a prayer for us before we finish. God, we praise you that our sin doesn't get the last word, but that you, our creator and our savior, get the last word. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room or everybody who hears or watches this sermon later that we would all remember our Creator, 
Any of us who don't have a relationship with you, I pray that today would be the day of repentance and faith and salvation. And for those of us who do know you, that this would be a day of calling us deeper into relationship with you. And as we go now to the Lord's table, I pray that in particular, the reality, the glorious reality of the gospel, that the creator of the universe loved us enough to become flesh and to give his body and blood for us, that that word would go deep into our hearts. And that we would carry that truth with us throughout this week and throughout the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.